I have a question for you today. Does God like camping? Now, you may think that this is a silly question, but I was with junior high youth last night. A bunch of them. And I remembered when I was with junior high youth what a, uh, what a joy it is to be in ministry with junior high youth because for them, there is no question that is off limits. They will just spurt out whatever is on their mind and whatever they are thinking. And there is a gift in asking those kinds of questions. So what do you think? Does God like camping? All right, so, so I just want to warn you that something that happens when we think about God, and we should be aware of this, uh, we have a tendency as humans um, right? It says that we are made in God's image. We tend to make God into our image when we think about God. So here's just a guess. Some of you right now are thinking, absolutely, God loves camping. I mean, it's nature, it's beauty, it's all of what God created, and God must love camping, right? God, God likes camping. And some of you are sitting there and thinking this. You're thinking, okay, I don't think God can like camping, because the first time that I went camping, it rained and rained and rained, and I just ended up soaked and the second time that I went camping, it got so cold, we didn't even stay out. So if God likes camping, God obviously would have sent better weather for me to camp. And just in addition, if God, you know, intended for us to camp, God would not have let humankind invent cabins with heating and air conditioning. Does God like camping? So whatever, whatever your answer to that question is, I just, I just want to invite you to hold on to that question today. We're going to come back to it a little later. Let's pray. God of grace and wisdom, in these moments today as we explore your word, Lord, just, uh, just widen our vision to see what you see. And God, open our minds to, to better understand your way and your teaching and Lord, just expand our hearts to grasp and, and know and share the fullness of your love in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today is the last day of our virtual tour through Egypt here at Clay Church. For the last three weeks, we've been touring around sites, getting to know the, the culture and the beliefs of ancient Egypt. And I know every trip has to come to an end, right? Every vacation has, has an ending. But I, I've got to tell you, I'm a, little bit, I'm a little bit sad today that it's coming to an end. Um, I'm also a bit worried because, like, sometimes when you have a trip, you end with, like, a really great meal. And I suppose we have cupcakes today. But, uh, um, and sometimes you end with, like, an incredible sight that's just going to stay in your memory. But I'm just going to warn you today, we're going to end in the wilderness, Maybe not the most exciting areas of Egypt, and I just, I just thought I'd warn you up front. So I will tell you, though, we do have cupcakes in place of manna um, for our wilderness experience today. Before, uh, before we get to the wilderness, um, though, we're going to make a, a few quick stops uh, kind of on our way out of Egypt to remember the culture and the belief system that the people of God left behind as they were fleeing Egypt. So this, uh, this first picture, this first stop is, is a Kamambo Temple. A temple, it's actually right along the Nile River. You literally pull the boat up to the shore and you walk up to this temple. You can't go far in Egypt without bumping into a, a temple, an a, ruins of an ancient temple of, of some kind. Every community, 
Almost every community had a, had a central God that they worshipped in that community, and they would, they would build a, a temple to that local God or one of the you know, pantheon of gods that they selected as their local God. The temples, so next is, is Philly Temple, the temples served as a, as a center of community life, right? People would, would gather here, they would join here, the, they would bring gifts for the gods to the, to the temple, the priests, because they were the intermediaries between the people and God, the, they held power and influence. It became like a community gathering place. Because of that, the temples, they were built with, with large plazas that were open to the community. So the, the outer room was a, was a large plaza that would be open to the community. And you can see in, in this, this picture, you get a, just a glimpse, how large these outer plazas were. It was like an outer courtyard. And you can just imagine that this outer courtyard in a community would be filled with almost like, imagine a marketplace, right? People would be gathering and they'd be trading and they'd be, you know, sharing the news of the day in these outer courtyards. And then almost every temple, it shared the same sort of general model, right? Along an axis that ran from the entrance all the way to the back, you first would enter that large open courtyard. And then you would go into a more confined space, which was the temple itself. And often there were side chambers there where the priests would have rooms or they'd meet with the community or, or they, would, they would live inside of the temple, and then if you follow that axis all the way in, you would come to what was known as the Holy of the Holies, the innermost sanctum of the temple. It was here where only the priests were allowed to go. It was here where they would make sacrifices to the gods. The picture that you see here is from the Karnak Temple Complex, and this is the, uh, the, the Holy of Holies of the largest temple in that complex. The stone in the front bottom of the pictures is the altar. It's where they would have made sacrifices to the gods. And if you, if you look right straight out past our, our guide, Mohammed, who's right there, if you look straight out, you can see that, right, you could see all the way out the front of the temple complex along that sight line from the Holy of Holies. At the Karnak Temple, there's a, there's a huge pond. Most temples had some kind of of place. Sometimes it was a bath, sometimes it was a pool. Here at the Karnak Temple, it was, it was what they called the, the sacred lake. Um, this one was man-made, and uh, excavations around it and learning around it, they believed that it was used for ritual baths for those coming into the temple complex. They would be invited to bathe first and then don robes before they entered into the, into the temple itself. Right, so this, this quick few stops, right? It shows us temples and ritual baths and holy altars. This, this is what the people of God left behind, the culture that they were coming out of, right? Taking what they could, as we're told in the book of Exodus, they fled all of this in the Egyptian empire, and they ended up here, this next picture. Okay, maybe not here exactly, but this is a picture out the window of an airplane flying north up the Nile River, looking out the right side at, uh, at what is beyond the Nile River Valley. So if you can imagine being in an airplane, you looked out the left and you see this green, lush river down below, and you look out the right, and this is what you see, just sand. Sand as far as you can see. We often, uh, we often think of the desert as flat, 
right? I mean, I, often it's pictured as, as just sand rolling, rolling a little bit, but generally flat for as, as far as you can go. But that's not true as you move into the wilderness from Egypt toward Jordan, which would have been the route of the, of the Israelites. The terrain is sand and dry, yes, but it's also, also rolling hills and, and, and rocky. And before you, you think, as we enter this wilderness, before you think of it's just dry and hot all of the time, you can climb up one of those desert mountains on a cold day, and you'll discover that, that there are huge swings of temperature in the desert. In the morning and evening, in fact, it can even lead to freezing. Cheryl and I um, stopped in an overlook on our travels out of Egypt, and we're now, we were now in Jordan, um, and, uh, and we're passing over this essentially mountain pass, and we stopped at this overlook, and the guide was like, do you want to get out and look? And so we got out, and we looked off the overlook, and it was cloudy, foggy mess, and you could see nothing. And then we turned around, and just on the other side of the van was this, trees just iced over with frost. And we both were like, wait, are we, are we in the desert? In fact, we asked the guide, and he's like, you're still in the desert. Welcome to, welcome to desert climates here. All this is to say, as you traverse the wilderness, as you traverse the desert, you begin to get a sense of how difficult life is can be in this area, in this region. Few and far between are any, anything like trees or rivers, any oasis with the water needed to sustain life. And this here that we pick up our story in Exodus, right? The plagues are over. The people have, of God have have escaped Egypt by the miracle of God parting the seas, parting a lake so that they could go through and then pushing that lake back over the, the chariots and the armies that came behind them. Can you imagine, just, just stop for a moment and imagine what it had to have been like to, right, to have been fleeing and having this army coming behind you and, uh, and suddenly you were told to trust God and you, you cross through the waters and you're on dry land and on the other side and then you see the army wiped out and you're, you're free. You're free of the horrors that you have left. You're free of the, of the slavery. You're, you're free. Can you imagine what that felt like? And so, as you, as you imagine that, right, you're, you're traveling to a new place. There's, there's adventure ahead of you. What do you think comes next? Well, this is what the story says. Exodus 15 says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? What are the people feeling? Have you ever been on a retreat or a vacation, and you've come back, and you're just refreshed, and you feel really good, right? Everything, everything just feels good. You, you just, you had this great time you had this wonderful experience maybe you had this this like mountaintop experience with God and then you come back 
and, uh, and Monday doesn't go quite according to plan, and Tuesday is worse, and by Tuesday night, you don't remember the vacation anymore. It's, you just feel like, oh my gosh, life is, is miserable. That might give us a snippet of what the people in the Exodus are feeling, right? I mean, we might think that they had this, this incredible experience. God delivered them from slavery. We might think, right? So, so they're filled, right? their hearts, they're filled with gratitude. They're, they're filled with, with fortitude, with courage to face whatever comes, excitement with this new adventure that lies ahead. No, three days later, their hearts are filled with complaints, grumbling. So Moses listens and he responds and he asks God for help and, and God provides water, leads the people to an oasis and they're there a few days sort of refill and, and fill their canteens again and then it, it's time to, to continue to, to move. And then we read this next, Exodus 16, verse 2 and 3. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Again, God has provided, and again, instead of trust or, or gratitude, the people complain. So we need to pause here and ask a question. Um, it's a hard one for all of us maybe to face. Um, would you raise your hand if, if you ever complain? Just put your hand up. <laughs> raise your hand if you ever complain. Keep it up if, if, you're, if, you, if you complain at all. If you Keep your hand up. Um, raise your hand if when things get hard or when you have a bad day or when you feel like uh, things are out of control, you sometimes complain. Keep them up if, if, this, is, if this is you. Right? Raise your hand if you find change to be hard. If sometimes when you're in the midst of change, you just, you just wish you could go back to the way things were before. Um, raise your hand if you've ever said, I just want to go back to the good old days. Raise your hand if, if you've, you've ever said that. Raise your hand if, if you've ever thought that if things would just go back to the way they were, life would be better again. All right, if your hand is not up right now, congratulations. You have mastered life. Um, you don't need to listen anymore. Uh, go get a cupcake, play games on your phone. Obviously, you have... Uh, you know, reach spiritual perfection, and, and that, is, that is awesome. Um, for the rest of us complainers, uh, I am in that camp. Um, we're going to keep reading this story. We're going to keep reading this story because, because this story, it reminds us that we're human. Because this story reminds us that when things get hard, it is awfully easy to complain. We're going to read this story because it's easy when things get hard and, and God is calling us into something new. It's really easy to want to turn around and go back. Even if that past wasn't good, it, it just feels like it would be easier to go backward. We're going to keep reading this story because the wilderness times of life are hard. Those times that exist between where we are and where we hope to be or where God is leading us, those times, those times can be painful and they can be difficult and they can be scary. And so we're going to sit in this story for a moment and, and glean the lessons 
that we need to understand God and God's presence in our lives like this. Call this wilderness lesson number one. God doesn't promise that things will be perfect in the moment. Right? God promises to be with us all the way through. Let me pause here a moment, right? God, I think sometimes we think that, you know, when we have that retreat experience, that mountaintop experience, we'll come back and everything will be okay. Uh, I used to tell kids when we were on retreat, like, this has been awesome. Just know that Monday ain't going to be like this. You're not going to feel this way by Monday or Tuesday. This, this incredible feeling of God's presence and all being right with the world it doesn't mean that tomorrow everything's going to be right with the world. God doesn't promise that. What God promises is this feeling that you have while you're in retreat, while you're in worship, this feeling that you have of God's presence. God promises that that is true, that that's the truth to carry with you, even when the times are hard. And the question for us as followers of Jesus, the question for, for us as God's people in these difficult times and the trying times is this, will we flee and return to what's easy, to what we know? Will we sit in the difficult times and, and just complain? Or will we trust God is leading us into a new future and follow where, where God leads? I don't know about you, but it feels to me a little bit like we're in, a lot of us are in a wilderness time right now. Right? We're, we're sort of on the other side of a terrible pandemic, and yet we're not. We're searching for how to live together again as a, as a community, as a country. I'm not sure we're, we're doing it very well. We're in this scattered and difficult time. Closer to home, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're in, a, in a time of wilderness as a church. I think it's okay to name that and, and the transitions that, that are happening and, and that lie ahead. The uncertainty after the pandemic and the changes just in the, in the church landscape. Not just here, but the, the church universal. It, it's looking different right now than it did two, three years ago. And I know that some of you are in a, in a wilderness time in, in your own lives, right? New family dynamics, perhaps, or, or between jobs, or just trying to figure out life again. We know about wilderness times. Some of us are in them, and some of us have, have lived through them. Times when we can't see the future and the present just seems daunting or, or scary. And we know about complaining, right? So maybe we should keep reading in Exodus and see what the people do and, and what God does. Because in the story of Exodus, an odd thing happens in chapter 25. Right? So, so to get us to chapter 25, what happens is God continues to provide for the people. He provides food. He provides 
God provides water. And then God provides a way to be community together. The Ten Commandments, the, uh, the, the teaching, the Torah. God, God provides all of that. And then we get to chapter 25. And let me just read to you verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Then verse 9, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, here's why I say this part of the story is a little bit odd. Moses was giving the people God's covenant, right? The guidelines and teachings for community. And then all of a sudden, this comes up. And, and here's why it's odd. The people would have already known God's presence, right? We know that God traveled with the people, right? Pillar of light, pillar of, pillar of fire. God, God was in the, in the cloud cover. God was, we know that they already had a sense of God's presence from the story. So why the sudden interest of God in these weird, detailed instructions for a tabernacle? I mean, every measurement, every detail is found in, the, in these next chapters. Why all of these detailed instructions for a tabernacle? Perhaps because God is willing to meet us in the wilderness where we are and remind us of the presence, of the promise of God's presence. Right, these details, they begin in chapter 25 and they go all the way to 31. And, and for us as readers today, there's all kinds of crazy, all kinds of crazy stuff in here. Detailed requirements about the decor and the, the construction and the decoration and the, and the clothing of the priests. And you can, you can study all of that and, and sort of how it fits in the culture of the time. But we're going to take a bigger picture knowing the context of the time. We can begin to see something else in all of these details. All this plan for the tabernacle. Right? The temples of Egypt, they represented the presence of their gods. The temples were the only way for, for the Egyptian people to sort of, sort of try and buy the favor of, of their god. They served as a, as a place for people to come and try, and try and curry that favor. Well, we know as readers of the story that the one god doesn't need a temple to be present to God's people. The one god doesn't need a temple. And yet... And yet God sees that God's people need a more familiar way to know God's presence. And so God meets them with these instructions to build a tabernacle. Right? This, this tent-like temple was, was like the temple of Egypt in some ways, but it was very different in others. Sure, it had an outer courtyard and, and a holy of holies, but other ways, important ways, it was remarkably different. 
This temple wasn't permanent. It would move with the people. God wouldn't be confined to to one place. This temple for God, this, this wouldn't be built by the powers of the empire with materials that they that they took from the land or the people by taxation, this, this tabernacle would be built with the offerings of the people. It would, it would come from the desire of the people to give to their God that they might know God's presence in their midst. Later in the story, we'll learn that the people, they were so desiring of, of this relationship with God, to know that God dwelled in their midst, that they would give and give and give so much so that they had to say, stop the offerings. In 20 years of ministry, I don't have a pastor friend who's ever said, stop the offerings. I don't know what that's like, but imagine that kind of heart to know God's presence at the heart of community, that that they just wouldn't stop giving. There were other important differences about this tabernacle from the temples of Egypt. The centerpiece of this temple was not just a place of sacrifice. There would be offerings made here, but not sacrifice of children or people, some of the awful things that happened in Egypt. And and at the heart of this temple would be the Ark of the Covenant, God's word, God's way of community sat at the very heart of of this temple. Right at the heart of this dwelling of God was was God's word for God's people. How they could live together in community. And yes, then sacrifices would be made. Animals would be sacrificed. But not to keep God happy and not to bargain with God. Sacrifices would be made in this temple to deepen the relationship of the people with God. This invitation to build the traveling temple, the instructions for the tabernacle, they were a gift from God to God's people. A gift. Isn't this an incredible thought, right? That the God of the universe saw the struggle of the people, saw that they they were having a hard time understanding God's presence in their midst. They were having a hard time hanging on to this relationship. And, And God didn't didn't judge them. He didn't strike them down for their lack of faith. He didn't chastise them for their complaining. God met them in the wilderness and gave them instructions for a way that they could know that God was with them. Which gives us wilderness lesson number two. God wants us to know in the trials and difficult times of our lives that God is with us. My prayer for graduates, every time I pray for graduates, my prayer is that they might know God's presence is with them each and every day, each and every moment. But as we who gather here today know, right, that isn't always easy to remember. It's easy to drift away. It's easy when life gets really hard to be negative and complain and forget that God promises to see us through. It can be easier to claim that God isn't with us or, or to blame the people of, of God for not being more God-like or, or to think that if things don't get better right away, that means we've been abandoned. But that, that is not the story of our faith. 
That's not the story of our faith. This is a picture you're going to see on the screen of, of the church that now sits on the top of Mount Nebo. At the end of Deuteronomy, so essentially passing through Exodus and, and all of the, the story of Moses, at the end of, of Deuteronomy, the people of God come to, come to this region where this church is now, and Moses meets God here on top of this mountain. And on top of this mountain, the Bible tells us that God shows Moses the promised land for God's people. This is the view looking out from the church toward Jerusalem, out toward the promised land. And it's interesting because when you stand here and you, you read the scripture, you realize that the lands that God describes to Moses, this promised land is told in the Bible, you actually can't see it all from this place. All that God says is there for the people of God. You can't see it from, from this location because this, this isn't a geography lesson from God. This isn't God painting country boundaries. This is God taking Moses, who has been faithful to God. Oh, he's, he's made some messes. He's made some mistakes along the way. But ultimately, he's come back to God. He's been trusting and faithful. And this is God showing Moses more than Moses can imagine about how God's promise is real and will be fulfilled. It's like God saying, yeah, the wilderness is tough. I know that, Moses. And, and you actually are not going to to enter into that promised land before your death. But I want you to see, because I want the people of faith to see in your story that I am true to my promises, that my love, that my love wins. Moses will die on this mountain short of entering the Holy Land, but he'll be glorified by God for his faith. And he'll die knowing that God is faithful and true to God's promise. This, this is the story of our faith. Early in my ministry, I knew a, a young guy. He uh, had just been married a couple of years and was going through an awful divorce. And, uh, and it was messy and, and his life was a mess. And, and he was faithful to that time. He he volunteered in ministry. He was at church every week, and we'd have these conversations, and, and he kept asking me, he just, he just kept saying, I just don't know where God is right now. I just don't feel God's presence. And we'd pray, and, and I'd tell him just to, you know, to keep praying and that I'd be praying for him. And then one evening, he came to the church, and he was in he was just in a good mood. You know when somebody walks in the door, sometimes you can just tell that like something has clicked or happened in their life. He walked through the door, and he's like, I got it. I was like, what do you mean you got it? He's like, I figured it out. What do you mean you figured it out? He said, God, I know where God is. I'm like, great, can you tell me? And, and then he said, he's like, I have this mentor, the um, professor in my graduate program, I have this mentor, and I've been meeting with him, and we've been talking about faith and, and life, and he told me this. He said, stop focusing on what's missing in your life. Stop complaining about where you are. Instead, focus on what's present in your life and focus on what can be. And he said, that did it. 
I stopped complaining that, about God not being present in my life and complaining about all the bad things in my life. And when I, when I began to stop complaining and when I began to trust that God was at work in my life, I realized these meetings with you have been holding me in God's love all of this time. And I realized these meetings with my mentor had been preparing me for a way to see another future. It's like I found it. I got it. And I said something really pastoral and prophetic like, I wish I had thought to say what your mentor had said six months ago for you. I love that idea, that thought. Stop focusing on what's missing. Complaining about what is. Instead, focus on what's present and focus on what can be with God. It's why we gather on Sundays as a community. It's why we study the Bible together. It's why we retreat together. Because offering worship and storytelling, those things that we do when we're together, those things that the tabernacle brought people together to do, anchors our faith for the difficult times. Right? Offering our gifts, it renews our commitments. It affirms our desire to be in relationship with, with God, who all along wants to be in relationship with us. Worship, right? It centers us in the word of God, just as the word was at the center of the tabernacle, which allows the community to embody who God is to each other and to the world. And storytelling, the instructions for, for the priests, the instructions for the community were come together to the temple to tell the story of the Exodus, to tell the story of what God was doing in their midst. It shows how God keeps showing up, how God continues to be with us. Which brings us back to our question, does God like camping? Well, in the beginning of John's gospel is a verse many people know this way, perhaps you've heard it, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Anybody know that verse? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But do you know what the literal translation says? And the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of an only begotten of a father, full of grace and truth. Does God like camping? The answer is yes, with you. God likes camping with you, with us. That's where God wants to be with us. That's where God, who created all that is, says God is willing to be in and with you. And when you doubt it, or when you struggle, or you find yourself in dry and deserted places, God invites you to step into, into the tabernacle of God's presence, Jesus, through offering and worship and telling the stories of where God is and has shown up, knowing that in Jesus, in Jesus, God is ready to is ready to camp out with you in those tough places. God is willing to camp out with you, will be camping out with you in those tough places. And the tent is optional. Amen.